0: Caviar.com, treat yourself to a tasting at home. Introducing Petite Caviar 101, Caviar, Truffles, and More. Provided the world's best caviar for over 30 years. Sustainable caviar, seasonal delights, boutique, grocery. Family owned and operated, provide, proud to supply the highest quality caviar available for over 30 years. 100% sustainable caviar. Such as re- Israeli Ostra, Belgian Ostra, Idaho White Sturgeon, Siberian Sturgeon, Paddlefish, or Ikea. National overweight, overnight shipping, guaranteed national next day overnight shipping, Tuesday through Saturday. Same day local pickup, local pickup and curbside for Seattle, ready for within two hours, Monday through Saturday. Next day local delivery, guaranteed next day local delivery for Seattle, Monday through Friday. Shop grocery for such items like weather Farms Cream Fresh, Betsy's Blink, Gluten-Free Betsy's Blink, Black Truffle Butter, White Truffle Oil, La Brujela Yellowfin Fina Yellow Belly in Olive Oil, trusses Original Spice Blend, Truffle Salt, Hosting and Wares Mother of Pearl Caviar Spoon, Mother of Pearl Spoon with Blue Handle, Great Barrier Reef Petite Spoon with Pointed Tip, Round mother of pearl palette, caviar presentoir with sterling band, petite mother of pearl caviar spoon, Saint Hilary modern caviar presentoir, fr- fruxis Saturn silver Pellet caviar cup, homemade recipes and more like mink potato, roasty with caviar and cream fresh, deviled quail eggs with caviar, blink with buckwheat. Bartleby.com an easier way to study hard. Ask a question. You have homework questions and Bartleby subject matter experts have answers. Ask away. Most questions are answered in as fast as 30 minutes and you'll be notified by email when your answer is ready. Find a solution. Proofread your paper. Bartleby Experts will look over your paper with their advanced grammar and spell checkers Bartleby Learn Access step-by-step solutions to millions of textbook problems. A searchable database of solutions to homework questions and subject matter experts on standby 24-7 when you're stuck. Bartleby Write. Write better right now. Scan for accidental plagiarism, check spelling and grammar, and formal citations correctly so you can spend less time writing and get the grade you want. Bartleby Tutor. 24 7 online tutoring service gives you Bartleby's personalized instruction, how you want, and the flexibility you demand. With convenient options, you can find the best fit for your lifestyle and study habits. Bartleby Learn Search, Solve, Succeed. Study Smarter with access to millions of step by step textbook solutions and uh, searchable. Digital database of homework solutions and subject matter experts on standby, twenty-four-seven to provide homework help when you need it. Subscribe and your first week is four ninety-nine. After first week, subscription auto-news monthly two ninety-nine to, 99- to nine ninety-nine USD or the then monthly current fee. Cancel anytime. Winning lineup of student tools, textbook solutions, millions of step-by-step solutions, with thousands added daily in 30 subjects. Expert Q&A: Ask Bartleby's experts your most troublesome homework or study questions anytime, and receive a detailed solution in as fast as 30 minutes. 24/7 homework help: Bartleby's subject-matter experts, many with advanced degrees, are always on standby to ease your concerns and get you back on track. Solution Database. Homework solutions are easily searchable and constantly updated. Quickly find what you need, save it for later, and access it from a mobile device. Try it today. Study on the go. Problems? Solved. Maximize your study time and get homework help anytime, anywhere with the Bartleby app. Ask or snap a question, a homework question. Search textbook solutions and get answer notifications right from your device. Download it on the App Store or Google Play. Bart'll be right. compose with confidence. Quit starting at a blinding cursor, or oh, quit staring at a blank, blinking cursor. Easier essay composition is right here with your new favorite plagiarism and grammar checker. Their all-in-one writing help tool is designed to reduce mistakes, improve writing habits. And transform okay messages into stellar ones so you can submit your paper with confidence, all for only $9.99 a month. Try Bartleby Write. 24-7 personal writing tour. Plagiarism Checker. Bartleby will help you catch missing citations, accidental copied text, and other mistakes giving you supreme confidence in your original work. Grammar and Spell Checker. Author your own success story with writing help to eliminate mistakes. Early Scoring. Bottlebee's advanced algorithm scans your paper and compares to thousands of similar papers to produce a score before you turn it in. Citation assistance, whether it's MLA MLA grammar checks or APA consistent citing source within a cinch, try it today. Bottlebee tutor, one on one tutoring on your schedule, whether it's a one time question or a homework problem that needs a private study session solution, Bottlebee's got you. Their team of live tutors are available 24-7. Get started today with a free 15-minute session on them. Find a tutor. Get a tutor on your computer. All tutoring sessions occur in real-time via messaging or audio for easy collaboration on homework and help, textbook solutions, and more. 24-7 availability. Tutors are on demand day or night and can accommodate your school and life balance. When you're ready to study, so is Bartleby. Flexible options. Don't pay for tutoring time you won't, but use by 30, 60, 120 minute increments, whichever best fits your needs. Didn't use all your minutes? You roll them over to another session. Many subjects. Tutors are available in over 20 subjects. Bartleby experts will help make sense of the toughest concepts in engineering, math, physics, business, and more. Find a tutor ready to get started. Sign up for 24/7 homework help now. Good morning. Hope you're ready for another presidential profile. U.S. President number 21, Chester A. Arthur, Part 1. Chester Allen Arthur, October 5, 1829, to November 18, 1886, was an American attorney and politician who served as the 21st President of the United States from 1881 to 1885. Previously the 20th Vice President, he succeeded to the President upon the death of President James A. Garfield in September 1881, two months after Garfield shot by an assassin. Arthur was born in Fairfield, Vermont, grew up in upstate New York, and practiced law in New York City. He served as the quartermaster general of the New York Militia during the American Civil War. Following the war, he devoted more time to New York Republican politics. and quickly rose to Senator Roscoe Conkling's political organization. President Ulysses S. Grant appointed him to the post of Collector of the Port of New York in 1871, and he was an important supporter of Conkling and the stalwart faction of the Republican Party. In 1878, President Rutherford B. Hayes fired Arthur as part of a plan to reform the federal patronage system in New York. Garfield won the Republican nomination for president in 1880, and Arthur was nominated for vice president to balance the ticket as an Eastern stalwart. Four months into his term, Garfield was shot by an assassin. He died 11 weeks later and Arthur assumed the presidency. At the outset, Arthur struggled to overcome a negative reputation as a stalwart and product of Conkling's organization. To the surprise of the reformers, he advocated and enforced the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act. He presided over the rebirth of the U.S. Navy, but he was criticized for failing to alleviate the federal budget surplus, which had been accumulating since the end of the Civil War. Arthur reluctantly signed the Chinese Occlusion Act, which barred the entry... Of Chinese laborers, the 1875 Page Act barred Chinese women for entering the country and was the first total ban on a nation or ethnic group from immigrating to the country. Suffering from poor health, Arthur made only a limited effort to secure the Republican Party's nomination in 1884 and retired at the end of his term. Journalist Alexander McClure wrote, No man ever entered the presidency so profoundly and widely distrusted as Chester Allen Arthur, and no one ever retired more generally respected. Alike by political friend and foe, Arthur's failing health and political temperament combined to make his administration less active than a modern president. Yet he earned the praise among t- contemporaries for his solid performance in office. The New York World summed up Arthur's presidency at his death in 1886: "No duty was neglected in his administration, and no adventurous project alarmed the nation." <coughs> Mark Twain wrote of him: "It would be hard indeed to, bet- to better present Arthur's administration." Early life, birth, and family. Chester Allen Arthur was born October 5, 1829, in Fairfield, Vermont. Arthur's mother, Malvina Stone, was born in Berkshire, Vermont, the daughter of George Washington Stone and Jesus Stevens. Her family was primarily of English and Welsh descent, and her grandfather, Uriah Stone, had served in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. Arthur's father, William Arthur, was born in Dreen, Colbackey County, Antrim, Ireland, to a Presbyterian family of Scots-Irish descent. He graduated from college in Belfast and immigrated to the province of Lower Can- Canadian, 1819 or 1820. Malvina Stone met William Arthur when Arthur was teaching school in Dunham, Quebec, near the Vermont border. They married in Dunham on April 12th, 1821, soon, down, soon after meeting. The Arthurs moved to Vermont after the birth of their first child, Regina. They quickly moved from the Burlington to Jericho and finally to Waterville as William received positions teaching at different schools. William Arthur also spent, also spent a brief time studying law. But while still in Waterville, he departed from both his legal studies and his Presbyterian opportunity to join the Free Will Baptists. He spent the rest of his life as a minister in that sect. William Arthur became an outspoken abolitionist, which often made, his, made him unpopular with some members of his congregations and contributed to the family's infrequent moves. In 1828, the family moved again to Fairfield, where Al- Chester Allen Arthur was born the following year. He was the fifth of his nine children who was named Chester after Chester Abel, the physician and family friend who assisted in his birth, and Allen for his paternal grandfather. The family remained in Fairfield until eighteen thirty two, when William Arthur's profession took them to churches in several towns of Vermont and upstate New York. The family finally settled in the in New York area. Arthur had seven siblings who lived to the adulthood. Regina, eighteen twenty two to nineteen ten, the wife of William G. Kaw, a grocer, bank, and community leader of Cohos, New York, who sued as town supervisor and village trustee. Jane, 1824 to 1842, uh, i 1825 to 1899, the wife of James A. Maston, who served as postmaster of the Cohoes and publisher of the Cohoes Cataract newspaper, and 1828 to 1915, a career educator who taught school in New York as well as working in South Carolina the years immediately before and after the Civil War. Malvina, 1832 to 1920, the wife of Henry J. Hainsworth who was an official of the Confederate government and a merchant in Albany, New York, before being appointed as a captain and assistant quartermaster in the U.S. Army during Arthur's presidency. William, eighteen thirty-four to nineteen fifteen, a medical schools graduate, who became a career army officer and pea master, he was wounded during his Civil War service. William Arthur retired in 1898 with the brevet rank of lieutenant colonel and permanent rank of major. George 1836 to 1838. Mary 1841 to 1941 the wife of John John E. McElroy, an Albany businessman and insurance assistant, and Arthur's official White House hostess during his presidency. The famous frequent moves later spawned accusations that Chester Arthur was not a native-born citizen of the United States. When Arthur was nominated for vice president in 1880, a New York attorney and political opponent, Arthur P. Hinman, initially speculated that Arthur was born in Ireland and did not come to the United States until he was 14 years old. He... Had that been true, opponents might have argued that Arthur was constantly ineligible for the vice-president for the, under the United States Constitution's natural-born citizen clause. When him, his original story did not take root, he spread a new rumor that Arthur was born in Canada. This claim too failed to gain credence. Education Arthur spent, home, Arthur spent some of his childhood years living in the New York towns of York, Perry, Greenwich, Lansingburg, Schenectady, and Hoosick. One of his first teachers said Arthur was a boy, frank and open in manners and genial genial in disposition. During his time at school, he gained his first political inclinations and supported the Whig Party. He joined another Whig, young Whigs, and supported Henry Clay. Even in a brawl against students support supported James K. Polk. Arthur also supported the Fenian Brotherhood, an Irish Republican organization founded in America. He showed his support by wearing a green coat after completing his college preparation at the Lyceum of Union Village, now Greenwich. Uh, and a grammar school in Schenectady, Arthur enrolled in Schenectady at the Union College in 1845, where he studied the traditional classic curriculum. As a senior, he was the president of the Ch- debate society, and was elected to Phi Beta Kappa during his winter breaks. Arthur served as a teacher at a school in, in-, in- Schenectady. Sorry for any mispronunciation of these long words. I know disres—I mean, no disrespect by it. I, I'll do my best to try to pronounce them right, but thank you for understanding if I can't fully pronounce them. After graduating in eighteen forty, Arthur returned to Coke and became a full-time teacher, and soon began to pursue an education in law. While studying law, he continued teaching, moving closer to home by taking a job at a school in North Palnau, Vermont. Coincidentally, first President James A. Garfield taught penmanship in the same school three years earlier, but he but the two did not cross paths during their teaching careers. In 1852, Arthur moved again to Cohoes, New York, to become the principal of a school at which his sister Malvina was a teacher. In 1853, after studying at State and National Law School in Boston Spa, New York, and then saving enough money to relocate, Arthur moved to New York City to read law at the Office of Erastus D. Culver, an abolitionist and lawyer and family friend. When Arthur was admitted to the New York Bar in 1854, he joined Culver's firm, which was subsequently renamed Culver, Parker & Arthur. Early Career, New York Lawyer When Arthur joined the firm Culver in New York, attorney John Jay, the grandson of the founding father John Jay, were pursuing a habeas corpus action against Jonathan Lemon, a Virginia slaveholder who was passing through New York with his eight slaves. In Lemon versus New York, Culver argued that as New York law did not permit slavery, and any slave arriving in New York was automatically freed. The argument was successful after several appeals was upheld by the New York Court of Appeals in 1860. Campaign biographers would later give Arthur much of the credit for the victory. In fact, his role was minor, although he was certainly an active participant. In the case. In another civil rights case in 1854, Arthur was <gasps> <coughs> Arthur was a late attorney representing with James Graham after she was denied a seat on the streetcar because she was black. She won the case and the verdict led to the desegregation of New York City streetcar lines. In eighteen fifty six, Arthur courted Ellen Herndon, the daughter of William Lewis Herndon. A Virginia naval officer. The two were soon engaged to be married. Later that year, he started a new law partnership with a friend, Henry D. Gardner, and traveled with him to Kansas to consider pursuing land and setting up a law practice. <coughs> and setting up a law practice At that time, the state was the scene of a brutal struggle between pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces, and Arthur lined up firmly with the latter. The rough frontier life did not agree with the genteel New Yorkers. After three or four months, the two young lawyers returned to New York City, where Arthur comforted his fiancee after her father was lost at sea in the wreck of the SS Central America. In 1859, they were married at Calvary Episcopal Church in Manhattan. The couple had three children William Lewis Arthur, December 10, 1860 to July 7, 1863, died of convulsions. Chester Allen Arthur II. July twenty fifth, 1864 to July 18, 1937, married Meyer Samson, then Ro- Rowena Graves, father of Gavin Arthur. Ellen Hansburg, Herndon Nell Arthur Pink- Pinkerton, November twenty first, 1871 to September 6, 1915, married Charles Pinkerton. After his brief marriage, Arthur devoted his efforts to building his law practice, no, after his marriage, Arthur devoted his efforts to building his law practice, but also found time to engage in Republican Party politics. In addition, he indulged in his, his military interest by becoming Judge Advocate General for the 2nd Brigade of the New York Militia. Civil War. In 1861, Arthur was appointed to the military staff of Governor Edwin D. Morgan. As Engineer-in-Chief, the officer was a patronage appointment of minor importance until the outbreak of the Civil War in April 1861. When New York and the northern, other northern states were faced with raising and equipping armies of a size never before seen in American history, Arthur was commissioned as a brigadier general and assigned to the state militia's quartermaster department. He was so efficient at housing and outfitting the troops that poured into the New York City that he was promoted to inspect the general of the state militia in March 1862 and then to quartermaster general that July. He had an opportunity to serve at the front when the 9th New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment elected him commander with the rank of colonel early in the war. But at General Morgan's request he turned it down to remain at his post in New York. He also turned down command of four New York City regiments organized as a Metropolitan Brigade again at Morgan's request. The closest Arthur came to the front was when he traveled south to inspect New York troops near Frederick's River, Virginia, in May 1862. Shortly after, forces under Major General Irvin De- McDowell seized the town during the Peninsula Campaign. That summer, he and other representatives of Northern Governors met with Secretary of State William H. Seward in New York to coordinate the raising of additional troops, and spent the next few months enlisting New York's quota of 120,000 men. Arthur received plaudits for his work, but his post was political appointment, he was relieved of his militia duties. In January 1863, when Governor Horatio Seymour, a Democrat, took office. Re- Reuben Fenton won the 1863 election for governor. Arthur requested a reappointment. Fenton and Arthur were from different factions of the Republican Party, and Fenton had already committed to appointing another candidate, so Arthur did not return to military service. Arthur returned to being a lawyer, and with the help of Additional conducts made in the military, he and the farm far of Arthur and Gardner flourished. Even as his professional life improved, however, <coughs> Arthur and his wife experienced a personal tragedy as their only child, William, died suddenly that year at the age of two. The couple took their son's death hard, and when they had another son, Chester Allen Jr., they lavished attention on him. They also had a daughter, Ellen, in 1871. Both children survived to adulthood. Arthur's political process improved along with his law progress when his patron, ex-Governor Morgan, was elected to the United States Senate. He was hired by Thomas Murphy, a Republican politician, but also a friend of William M. Tweed, the boss of the Tammany Hall Democratic Organization. Murphy was also a hatter who sold goods to the Union Army, and Arthur represented him in Washington. The two became associates within New York. Republican Party circles, eventually rising in the ranks of the conservative branch of the the party dominated by Thurlow Weed. In the presidential election of 1864, Arthur and Murphy raised funds from Republicans in New York and they attended the second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln in 1865. New York politician, Conkling's machine. At the end of the Civil War meant new opportunities for the men in Morgan's Republican machine, including Arthur. Morgan leaned toward the conservative wing of the New York Republican Party, as did the men who worked with him in the organization, including Weed Seward, who continued in office under President Andrew Johnson, and Roscoe Conkling, an eloquent Utica congressman and rising star in the party. Arthur rarely articulated his own political ideas during his time as part of the machine. As was common at the time, loyalty and hard work on the machine's behalf was more important than actual political positions. At the time, U.S. Customs Houses were managed by political appointees who served as collector, naval officer, and surveyor. In 1866, Arthur unsuccessfully attempted to secure the position of naval officer at the New York custom House, a lucrative, lucrative job subordinate only to the collector. He continued his law practice, now a solo practice, after Gardner's death and in his role in politics, becoming a member of the prestigious Century Club in 1867. Conklin elected to... The United States Senate in 1867 those Arthur and facilities his rights in the party. And Arthur became chairman of the New York City Republican Executive Committee in 1868. His ascent into the party hierarchy kept him busy most nights and his wife resented his continual absence from the family home on party business. Conkling succeeded to leadership of the conservative wing of New York's Republicans <coughs> by 1868 as Morgan concentrated more time and effort on national politics, including serving as chairman of the Republican National Committee. The Conkling machine was solidly behind General Ulysses S. Grant's candidacy for president and Arthur raised funds for Grant's election in 1868. The opposing Democratic machine in New York City, known as Tammany Hall, worked for Grant's opponent, former New York Governor Horatio Seymour. While Grant was victorious in the national vote, Seymour narrowly carried the state of New York. Arthur began to, vote, to devote more of his time to politics and less to law, In 1870, he became counsel to the New York City Tax Commission, appointed when Republicans controlled the state legislature. He remained at the job until 1870 at a salary of $10,000 a year. Arthur resigned after Democrats enrolled by William N. Tweed of Tammany Hall won a legislative majority, which meant they could name their own appointee. In 1871, Grant offered to name Arthur as Commissioner of Internal Revenue with President Alfred Pleasanton. Arthur declined the appointment. In eighteen seventy, President Grant gave Conkling control over New York pensionage, including custom house at the port of New York. Having become friendly with Murphy over their shared love of horses during the summer vacations on the Jersey Shore in July of that year, Grant appointed him to the collector's position. Murphy's reputation as a war profiteer and associated with Tammany Hall made him unacceptable to many of his own party, but Conkling convinced the Senate to confirm him. The collector was responsible for hiring hundreds of workers to collect the tariffs due at the United States' busiest port. Typically these jobs were dispensed to adherents of the political machine responsible for appointing the collector. Employees were required to make a political competition known as assessments back to the machine, which made the job a highly coveted political plum. Murphy's unpopularity only increased as he replaced workers loyal to Senator Reuben Fenton's faction of the Republican Party with those loyal to Conklings. Eventually, the pressure to replace Murphy grew too great, and Grant asked for his resignation in December 1871. Grant offered the position to John Augustus Griswold and William Orton, each of whom declined the, and recommended Arthur. Grant then nominated Arthur with the New York Times, Company. his name, various seldom rises to the surface of metropolitan life, and yet moving like a mighty undercurrent, this man, during the last ten years, has done more to mold the course of the public court in this state than any other man in the country. The Senate confirmed Arthur's appointment as collector. He controlled nearly a thousand jobs and received compensation as great as any federal officeholder. Arthur's salary was initially $6,500, Dollars, but senior customs employers were compensated additionally by the moiety system, which awarded them a percentage of the cargo seized and fines levied on importers who attempted to even the tariff, evade the tariff. In total, his income came to more than fifty thousand dollars, more than the president's salary, and more than enough for him to enjoy fashionable clothes and a lavish lifestyle. Among those who dealt with the custom house, Arthur was one of the era's most popular collectors. He got along with his subordinates, and since Murphy had already filled the staff with Constance adherents, he had a few occasions to fire anyone. He was also popular within the Republican Party as he effectively efficiently collected campaign assessments for the staff and placed party leaders' friends and jobs as positions became available. Arthur had a better reputation than Murphy, but Reformers still criticized the patronage structure and the Moyiet system as corrupt. That's more IT, M-I, system as corrupt. As a rising tide of reform within the party caused Arthur to rename the financial structures for employees as voluntary contributions in eighteen seventy two, but the concept remained, and the party reaped the benefit of controlling government jobs in that year reform minor publicists formed the Liberal Republican Party and voted against Grant, but he was elected, re-elected to, in spite of their opposition. Nevertheless, the movement for civil service reform continued to chip away at Consum's machine. In 1874, Custom House employees were found to have improperly assessed fines against an importing company as a way to increase their own incomes, and Congress reacted, repealing the Moy-I- moyite System and putting the staff, including Arthur, on reg- regular salaries. As a result, his income dropped to 12000 a year, more than his nominal boss, the Secretary of the Treasury, but far less than what he had previously received. Clash with Hayes Arthur's four-year term as clerk expired on December 10, 1875, and Conkling then among the most powerful politicians in Washington arranged his protégé reappointed by President Grant. By 1876, Conkling was considering a run for the president himself, but the selection of of reformer Rutherford B. Hayes by the 1876 Republican National Convention preempted the machine boss. Arthur and the machine gathered campaign funds with their usual zeal, but Conkling limited his own campaign activities to a few speeches. Hayes' opponent, New York Governor Samuel J. Tilden, carried in New York and won the popular vote nationwide, but after the resolution of several months of dispute over 20... (coughs) electoral votes from the states of Florida, Louisiana, Oregon, and South Carolina. He lost the presidency. Hayes entered office with a pledge to reform the patronage system. In 1877, he and Treasury Secretary John Sherman made Conklin's machine the primary target. Sherman ordered a commission led by John Jay to investigate the New York Custom House. Jay, with whom Arthur had collaborated in the Lemon case two decades earlier, suggested that the Custom House was overstaffed with political appointments and that 20% of the employees were expendable. Sherman was less enthusiastic about the reforms than Hayes and Chase, but he approved the Commission's report and ordered Arthur to make the personal reductions. Arthur appointed a committee of Custom House of workers to determine where the cuts were to be made and, after a written protest, carried them out. Notwithstanding his cooperation, the Jay Commission issued a second report critical of Arthur and other Custom House employees, and subsequent reports urging a complete reorganization. Hayes further struck at the heart of the spoils system by issuing an executive order that forbade assessments and barred federal officeholders office from taking part in the management of political organizations, caucuses, conventions, or election campaigns. Arthur and his subordinates, Naval Officer Alonzo B. Cornell and Surveyor George H. Sharp, refused to obey the president's order. Sherman appointed, encouraged Arthur to resign, offering him an appointment by Hayes to the Consulship in Paris in exchange, but Arthur refused and in september eighteen seventy seven Hayes submitted three minutes regulation which they refused to give. Hayes then submitted the appointment of Theodore Roosevelt Sr., L. Bradford Prince and Edward Merritt, all supporters of Conkling's rival William M. Evarts to send to this send for confirmation as their ear replacements. Senate's Commerce Committee, chaired by Conkling, unanimously rejected all nominees. The full Senate rejected Roosevelt and Prince by a vote of 31-25, to 25 and confirmed Merritt only because Sharp's turn had expired. expired. Arthur's job was spared until only, only until July 18th, when Hayes took advantage of a congressional recess to fire him and Cornell, replacing them with the recess appointment of Merritt and Silas W. Burt. Hayes again offered Arthur the position of Consul General in Paris as a faith saving consolation. Arthur did again declined, as Hayes knew he probably would. Conkling opposed the confirmation of Merritt and Burt when the Senate reconvened in February 1879, but Merritt was approved by a vote of 31 to 25, as was Burt by 31 to 19, giving Hayes his most significant civil service reform victory. Arthur immediately took advantage of the resulting free time to work for the election of Edward Cooper as New York City's next mayor. In September 1879, Arthur became chairman of the New York State Republican Election Committee, a post which he served until October 1881. In, <coughs> 1881. <coughs> in the state elections, that the Republican nominees for state offices would, na- would be men of conscience faction who had been not stalwarts. They were successful, but narrowly as Cornell was summoned for governor by a vote of 234 to 216, Arthur and Conklin campaigned vigorously for the stalwart ticket, and owing, a partly, and owing partly to a splintering of the Democratic vote, they were victorious. Arthur and the machine had rebuked Hayes and their intra party rivals, but Arthur had only a few days to enjoy his triumph when, on January 12, 1880, his wife died suddenly <coughs> while he was in Albany organizing. The political agenda for the coming year, Arthur felt deficit and perhaps guilty and never remarried. Stay tuned for part two of U.S. Apprentice number 21, Chester A. Arthur.